Is it possible that Russia is the main obstacle to peace and democracy in Ukraine? Can Western institutions like the Washington-based National Democratic Institute ensure the fairness of upcoming Ukrainian elections? Are the right sector and Svoboda parties a concern as the elections draw near? Can the anti-Maidan movement in the east and southern Ukraine be dismissed as a Russian-fostered operation? How are Ukrainians being affected by U.S.-EU sanctions against Russia? And with military buildups escalating on Russia's borders, are we on a fast track to war? On this week's Global Research News Hour, we will hear the perspectives critical of President Putin from Dr. Lloyd Axworthy and Bill Balan, the President and Vice President, respectively, of the University of Winnipeg, who recently returned from a fact-finding mission in Ukraine. We will also hear a perspective much more critical of the Western powers from Rick Rosoff of Stop NATO. On today's program, who's undermining Ukrainian democracy, Putin or the West? Bringing you the analysis beyond the headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of May 9th, 2013. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The Global Research News Hour is a special radio collaboration between the Center for Research on Globalization and campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. We seek to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major stories shaping our world today, from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our program is available from the Center's website, globalresearch.ca. Our show is also broadcast on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We'll begin our show with news notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. For some time now, the CIA has been running secret training and indoctrination camps along the porous and vulnerable borderlands of Niger, Chad, and Cameroon. At these camps, youths from poor, deprived, and disoriented backgrounds are recruited and trained to serve as insurgents. The agents who supply these youth lure them with the promise of better life and work of Allah and further indoctrinated to believe they are working to install a just Islamic order from the ungodly one that currently holds sway in Nigeria. It is neither a coincidence nor guesswork that the National Intelligence Council of the United States government estimated that Nigeria will disintegrate by the year 2015. The whole report actually is a coded statement of intentions on how using destabilization plots, the U.S. plans to eventually dismember Nigeria. That's from the article, Humanitarian Intervention in Nigeria. Is the Boko Haram insurgency another CIA covert operation? WikiLeaks, by Athiling P. Reginald Mavingira, Posted May 8th, originally appearing in African Renaissance News. From 2001 up to today, I've watched the negative U.S. media mounting against Putin. Even accusations of assassinations, poisonings, and comparing him to Hitler. 
During this time, I've traveled throughout Russia several times every year and have watched the country slowly change under Putin's watch. Small businesses were growing, agriculture was showing improvement, and stores were becoming stocked with food. Highways were being laid across the country. New rails and modern trains appeared even in far-out places, and the banking industry was becoming dependable. Russia was beginning to look like a decent country, certainly not where Russians hoped it to be long-term, but improving incrementally for the first time in their memories. That's from the article, Who is Vladimir Putin? Why does the U.S. government hate him? By Sharon Tennyson, posted May 8th, originally appearing at winterpatriot.com. It's true that Washington supports neo-Nazi extremists who burned down the Odessa trade union's house. If that wasn't the case, then Obama would have spoken out forcefully against the action, which he has not. Malik is also correct when he says the fire was a giant false flag operation, which refers to a covert military operation where agents disguise themselves as members of their adversaries' group to initiate a provocation that will then be blamed on the other side. In this case, pro-regime fascists and probably agents from the security services, disguised themselves as Kiev regime opponents in order to throw bricks and stones at the police and right-sector goons. This was the flashpoint that started the melee that ended in a massacre. That's from the article, False Flag in Odessa, the pathetic U.S. media coverage, by Mike Whitney, posted May 8th, originally appearing in Counterpunch. How big is the drug trade? With the recent capture of El Chapo, the richest drug cartel leader in the world, let's take a look at what he was known for. A global drug trade, estimated annual value of global criminal markets in the 2000s, cocaine, $88 billion U.S., opiates, $65 billion U.S. By comparison, only $1 billion in criminal firearms markets. That's 153 times bigger than the criminal firearms trade. That's from the article, Cocaine, Heroin, Cannabis, Ecstasy, How Big is the Global Drug Trade? Posted by Global Research News on May 8th, originally appearing at topcriminaljusticeschools.net. The sinking of the Lusitania was a major catalyst for America's latest entry into the World War. Total deaths from the war are estimated between 9 and 15 million souls. American casualties of dead and wounded were in excess of 300,000. But the House of Morgan, House of Rothschild, and other banksters were thoroughly pleased at America's entry into the war. It meant that they continued to benefit hugely from the wholesale slaughter and misery of millions of programmed human beings. When one thinks of Pearl Harbor, Gulf of Tonkin, 9-11, and other false flags, it seems that some things never change. That's from the article, The Sinking of the Lusitania, America's Entry into World War I, a bonanza for Wall Street, by Gabriel Donahoe, posted May 8th, originally appearing at Fool's Crow Blog and News Beacon, Ireland. The respected publication Intelligence Online reported today that Samir al-Sheikh, the Syrian general responsible for intelligence operations in the southern sector bordering the Golan Heights, was assassinated on April 13th. 
My Israel source confirms the hit was organized by the Mossad. The general was targeted because recently he'd begun using Hezbollah fighters to infiltrate the Golan and mount operations against the IDF. This is part of Israel's standard repertoire of statecraft. Instead of negotiating with its neighbors to resolve its disputes, it pursues its interest out of the barrel of a gun. That's from the article, Israel Assassinates Syrian General, by Richard Silverstein, posted May 8th, originally appearing in Tikkun Olam. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu. Lloyd Axworthy is the President and Vice-Chancellor of the University of Winnipeg. He is also a former Canadian Foreign Affairs Minister and the author of four publications, including Navigating a New World and the more recent Boulevard of Broken Dreams, a 40-year journey through Portage Avenue, displacement, dislocation, and how osmosis can resolve community blight. Dr. Axworthy and University of Winnipeg Vice President of Finance and Administration Bill Balan had taken part in a fact-finding mission to assess the situation in Ukraine in the lead-up to the May 25th election. The mission was underwritten by the Washington-based National Democratic Institute, an affiliate of the National Endowment for Democracy. What you're about to hear is excerpted from their conversation with Winnipeg Free Press journalist Dan Lett at a live-streamed event held on April 22nd. The emphasis of their discussion was the optimism they felt about the enhancement of democracy in Ukraine and about how to deal with Russia, which they seem to see as the sole threat to that imperative. For a lot of people who may have been only passively following the events, there are so many different narratives right now unfolding from Ukraine that it, it may be, uh, Lloyd, actually difficult to keep them all separate. Uh, Dan, you were very... Uh kind in saying narratives. I think we could also <laughs> use the word propaganda. Yes. Um, what's happening in Ukraine is the incredible uh, power uh, of Kremlin messaging uh, trying to set a political uh, scenario. Unfortunately, uh, a lot of it is being bought by our own media uh, because they like to think of uh, tanks crossing borders and uh, civil wars as opposed to the on the ground, uh, much quieter, uh, soft power activities like creating elections and doing the hard scrabble work of uh, building uh, democratic activities. Um, but there's no doubt that uh, a large question that is uh, front and center in Ukraine is the is the narrative um, and. Uh, you remember the old saying that a diplomat is a person who was sent abroad to lie for their country. Uh, I think in this case, uh, the diplomats are lying for not abroad. They're lying everywhere. I've never seen quite uh, such a uh, fog machine underway 
as what we're getting these days about distortions of reality. And that was certainly true in Ukraine. So the um, and Bill maybe help us with a bit of the background, but this is really these are events that are unfolding this month that really uh, have been at least for a year, if not longer. There has been a slow buildup uh, to uh, uh, you know what we hope is a uh, a relatively peaceful climax to the political intrigue. But the the current president uh, is has been under siege for a very long time for tilting uh, too far. Uh, to Russia in uh, uh, diplomatic and other ties. And that, that really is the seed of a lot of what's going on right now. Uh, that's very true. The, um, uh, I guess you could go back several years. Uh, uh, the previous president who, uh, who literally vacated his position back in late February um, came to power in, uh, and basically the evidence is out that much of the, the developments that we're seeing taking place now have been planned and, and discussed and worked out with the uh, Russian leadership going back about three years. Uh, the military budgets were cut back severely. The um, uh, uh, hardware has been basically stopped. The cross-border, the border services along the eastern uh, borders had been basically eliminated. So there was a lot of planning given to this idea that, uh, that there would be some movements this way into eastern Ukraine and into Crimea. Um, we saw when we were in Ukraine, as the Ukrainian troops were leaving the, uh, the peninsula, there was a big discussion about what to do with the hardware that was left behind. And the issue for the Ukrainian government was they would have to spend a ton of money transporting this out. And the question was, well, why don't you just drive it out? None of it worked. So, um, you know, there's a, there's a long-standing kind of issue here that this has been going on for several years. The, the Ukrainian populace has had something to say, though, about these events that have been brewing uh, for the last two or three years. And, and although Crimea probably drew uh, more attention uh, from people outside Ukraine, uh, there has been violence and unrest and protests now for a very long time, Lloyd. I suppose one of the things that I came back from Ukraine uh, inside was an uh, enormous feeling that uh, I was being part of an uh, exceptional effort uh, by a group of people who had gone through the torment of the Maidan, the protest, uh, had been sniped at by government troops, 118, 118 killed, thousands wounded. Uh, these were ordinary Ukrainians. This is not a battle between militias or armies. These were college students. They were housewives. They were civil servants. They were, they were everybody. They had gone through this, and they were not going to give it up to the Russians. I mean, that's the thing that hasn't come through in our own media that you have got a will. I, I, I just wrote a piece uh, in the blog this morning saying that uh, what struck me when I got back is what Ukraine is experiencing is an example of non-resistance opposition. You know, the Gandhi kind of idea that we're not big enough or strong enough to take on the tanks and the artillery and the trained uh, thugs that uh, Putin is using, but we can use our will, our you know, our commitment that we're not going to accept any longer a government that's corrupt, 
It's run by oligarchs where there is no opportunity for access or accountability. We're going to change that. And, and what was fascinating, they are doing it. I mean, that to me is the real story of Ukraine. It's not the kind of stratagems and the games of Putin. There's a lot of concern about the uh, uh, a couple of the parties uh, like Svoboda and, and Right Sector. They've been accused of allegations about uh, neo-Nazi uh, links and uh, you know support for Bandera, uh, who was a Nazi collaborator back in World War II. So there's concerns about that element in this parliament, which is now in high positions. And I'm wondering, having, having done this fact-finding mission, having been there, uh, how you would assess this, this new authority and, and those individuals in particular? Could you maybe dismiss any concerns about uh, uh, Svoboda and right sector as being somewhat menacing? Or we actually, <clears throat> One of the parties that we met with was Svoboda, and um, uh, there were some very difficult questions asked of them. Um, and you've got to remember that if you go to European politics, there's a number, in a number of different countries, you do have fringe groups that exist that, have, that exhibit some of those same tendencies. And um, uh, there's been a lot of concern, and I think civic society, civil society issues in terms of that political party and others, they've now moved away from a lot of those positions. And um, what we heard from them was a totally different type of a, they, they seem to have turned the page and a totally different type of a perspective. They are very strong on maintaining a Ukrainian language and a Ukrainian culture in Ukraine. Um, and uh, for good reason, because it's a very, it, those, those elements have been threatened over many, many years. But some of the other more extreme elements, which were part of that party at the origins, in the origins of the party, uh, certainly, they have moved away from it, and none of that was, was presented or, or talked about from their point of view. I think they recognize that there is a need for a change. Having these people in these positions of, like, the national security uh, apparatus, for example, I believe one of them is from that party. You're, you're satisfied that uh, people have nothing to worry about with regard to that? Re I personally am. You're satisfied? Mr. Axworthy as well? I think that uh, from what I could see, the people who were in the government were fully conscious of uh, who in the major areas of protest during the three months were there to, kind of, to pursue their own particular, in this case, xenophobic nationalist agenda. Uh, but they had basically been pushed aside when it came into the question of of the, of the governing itself. They were still there as a political party, but they were very much a minority group. They weren't really central to the action. That was Lloyd Axworthy and Bill Balan, two observers recently returned from a fact-finding mission in Ukraine. Shortly, we'll hear a different perspective from anti-war activist and analyst Rick Rosoff. Stay tuned.
Rick Rosoff is a Chicago-based anti-war and anti-militarist activist and manager of the Stop NATO Listserv and website. He's joined us uh, periodically to update us on the situation in Ukraine. And uh, we've seen some um, interesting developments uh, over the past week or so. Uh, Rick Rosoff, thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, Michael, it's always an honor to be on your show. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you. Um, now, first of all, I, I just um, wanted to um, yes, I, I bring forward some of the points that were brought forward uh, uh, by uh, Lloyd Axworthy and uh, his uh, 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 companion, uh, Bill Ballon, who, is, who were in uh, Ukraine on a fact-finding mission in advance of the uh, May 25th election. Uh, and uh, they, they were basically making uh, comments to the effect that uh, a lot of the narrative we're hearing from the, 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 the one of the problems essentially is that Russians, Russian propaganda is do- dominating the narrative. And so we're uh, basically uh, a lot of the concerns that they're raising about uh, uh, you know, um, ultra-nationalist uh, uh, threats to uh, – you know, Russian-speaking Ukrainians are, are exaggerated, uh, that uh, a lot of the concerns around uh, Svoboda Party, that, that true, there may be some extreme elements, but uh, they were, uh, you know, Mr. Axworthy believed, uh, somewhat marginal uh, compared to the strength of the, the more peaceful uh, activists uh, within the Maidan who are ordinary people. Um do you want to sort of uh, maybe sort of set the record straight as far as you understand it? I mean, in terms of the, uh, I guess, you know, the the, the Russian uh, messaging versus, I guess, what we're seeing from uh, the Western sources? I would. And I, I think there are a couple of models we can use for this. One of them is what in you know, psychoanalysis used to be called projection, that is attributing to others what your own motives and actions are. Uh, which, and we have to keep in mind Mr. Axworthy is a former government official now, but still speaking uh, ex officio, I imagine, in, in, a, in a certain capacity, um, as a, uh, you know, the, what's the I'm looking for? Um, past, but uh, still influential political figure. But what he's doing is simply echoing the, you know, the prevalent Western line, that of the United States and of the major Western European countries which is to attribute all blame to that one nation had nothing to do with the internal events within Kiev. And when he's talking about Ukraine, and when the West is talking about Ukraine, they're talking about Kiev. They're talking about the capital, maybe some nationalist strongholds in the northwest uh, of the country, around Lviv and so forth, uh, because they've simply not traveled to the south, and they haven't certainly traveled to the east, uh, where you know, the, the, not only the Crimea, but the areas like Lugansk and Donetsk and uh, Slavyansk and, and so forth, where... You know, people clearly do not uh, support the uh, the position of the Western clients. Um, you know, both the um, the chocolate baron or oligarch or uh, the gas princes, uh, Yulia Tymoshenko, who by the way was quoted uh, in Interfax, I believe, or Interfax Ukraine too, uh, recently saying if she does not win the May 25th election, there'll be a third revolution in Ukraine. The first being the Orange Revolution of 2004 or five, and the most recent being the neo-fascist uh, push in uh, in February of this year. So, and this is somebody who's caught on tape. You know, I can't vouch for the authenticity of it, but it appears to be uh, an, you know, uh, an authentic tape, uh, an audio one where she talks about nuking Russians, referring to them in a derogatory term for Russians, 
referring to them and whatever. This is a curious one. Uh, uh, the uh, Ukrainian equivalent is of the infamous 12-letter word that begins with M and ends with R. Uh, this is somebody who wants to be head of state uh, with, with the blessings of sectors of uh, influential uh, factor, uh, forces in the West, of course. But a couple of things. You know, first of all, the Russian propaganda is supposedly uh, so omnipotent that it's convinced the world that black is white and the splendid example of uh, democratic self-empowerment and so forth in Kiev, which resulted in you know the murder of 12 to 16 police officers, dozens of them being set on fire by petrol bombs, uh, parts of the you know the center of the, the capital city being set on fire for weeks on end, hundreds of people being wounded, snipers uh, you know killing people in the square. Who, if one is to believe the foreign minister of Estonia speaking with Catherine Ashton of the European Union, were in fact sympathizers of the uh, so-called pro-democracy forces rather than the uh, uh, government security forces of the Yanukovych government, for example. Uh, that all of this is, uh, uh, is a misrepresentation attributable to the. Uh, ubiquitous and omnipotent Russian news media. I mean, that's news to me. You know, I thought most of the world listened to BBC and CNN, and I'm afraid they do. And the fact that uh, some Russian media online, for the most part, are able to uh, somewhat jeopardize the closed uh, information environment and to simply get out not only an alternative perspective, in many cases simply the empirical truth. I mean, there's no question about what happened on May 2nd in, in Odessa at the trade union's house. Uh, there's no room for interpretation about an event like that, particularly as the perpetrators have posted videos uh, demonstrating what they did and applauding it, you know, taking credit for uh, the mass murder of innocent civilians. Uh, by the way, I'm sure Mr. X, uh, Xworthy had nothing, <laughs> pronounce that right? uh, has, had nothing to say about that. And I'm sure that other you know, Canadian officials, past and present, as well as their American and uh, Western uh, European counterparts, you know, have been conspicuously silent on this point. It's not a question of whether, you know, the Russian spin or interpretation on it. It's a question of did it happen or didn't. It did. And then it's a question of you know, what, whether, what the response is, and it, it appears to be if it's simply inconvenient uh, for the dominant Western narrative, which is, uh, you know, at this point delusional, then it's simply dismissed or ignored. This is what's now considered to be news coverage with the, uh, the corporate media and also with, you know, government media sources in the West. I guess what when it comes to propaganda, what's it's the, the insidiousness is not just what is said, but more importantly, what is not said, and and the kind of labels that are used, uh, like they they call the the people who are occupying the the trade union, and it wasn't just uh, uh, you know uh, they use the term militants to describe uh, a lot of the people who were were occupying that that uh, the building when the, the, there were also people there who were just fleeing for their lives uh, and trying to find safe haven. That's correct. And, and you know, I, I would say, you know, rather than dwell on the particulars, because what's unfortunately the case is even though uh, we can establish beyond the shadow of a doubt what occurred, uh, that really doesn't matter as long as, uh, you know, the Western uh, portrayal of it and people's willingness to concede to the Western uh, interpretation of events or, as you mentioned, you know, the mothballing of uh, information so that it never reaches the public consciousness, unless those, you know, unless we fight it on, on those levels, you know, considerably higher levels, then we could be as right as we are uh, um, that, you know, as a person could be. And it's really not going to have a change the behavior of government, certainly. And it's, unfortunately, we may be very limited in our ability to affect the thinking even of the average person on the street, but that's our responsibility, of course. 
and this show is a, it was an example of our attempt to do something like that. But let me give you another example. Um, Secretary of State here, Foreign Minister of the United States, uh, John Kerry recently uh, um, you know, issued a, um, a blistering attack against Russia in, in a number of capacities. One of them referred to RT, former Russia Today, the television network, as a propaganda uh, born, propaganda born. Uh, unlike, for example, right, uh, the State Department itself that he heads up, which is constantly uh, you know, churning out the, the most naked uh, propaganda and transparent and, and uh, uh, primitive, uh, and certainly bellicose. Uh, but uh, to suggest that Fox TV or CNN or um, you know, the, the, uh, the major old-fashioned uh, uh, commercial networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, are not propaganda networks, or outlets, you know, is, is defying imagination. Here again is a case of somebody who, you know, sees the moat in his neighbor's eye and evidently not the beam in his own. But this goes with imperial arrogance, mm. where uh, everyone else's flaws, real or fancied, by the way, are uh, you know, accentuated and, and uh, condemned and denounced, and your own egregious crimes uh, aren't even acknowledged as existing. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcast out of Winnipeg on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm. We are also podcast on the website, globalresearch.ca. Um, could you maybe just sort of seal, like, the... Uh the arguments uh, that, that that have been put forward about because uh, they are you know quite uh, you know far far reaching within the West uh, this idea that um, it's a bit of a double standard this idea that uh, the, the the people who are agitating uh, the, the the anti Kiev uh, or the the anti fascist regime. Uh, you know that those activists, the ones that are occupying buildings, that uh, that that the Russians are involved in uh, to some degree, that they've been organizing for years beforehand, and that they've got their agents out there. Um, is I mean, the the, the, the counter argument is that you know that the CIA and, and and NATO have had their people involved with the Maidan. I mean, isn't it at least conceivable that Russian that uh, th- that there has been some Russian special operations uh, within the uh, these eastern centers uh, to uh, you know help uh, you know for, for for strategic reasons to uh, protect themselves. Yeah, it's certainly a possibility, and it's a perfectly understandable one. You know, I can assure you, I was in uh, you know visiting Quebec in the late 1970s and early 1980s, and I know for a fact there were U.S. FBI and other intelligence agents up there. You know, head of the referenda on independence. You better believe it. You know, and uh, nobody seemed to mind that because they were serving the interest of Ottawa at the time, which was, uh, you know, anti-independence in Quebec. And this, is some, this isn't any ordinary state of events. This isn't as though the U.S. is deploying uh, scores of uh, special operations forces or intelligence officers, uh, you know, across the border in Ontario or something. I mean, this is a country where, uh, as of today, and this is actually a report going back a week, there are 15,000 troops from the Ukrainian junta set out by the Canadian junta in Kiev, and what they call an anti-terrorist operation, 15,000 troops right on the Russian border with several hundred armored vehicles, including tanks, and field artillery. 
you know, my God, if, if something like that were encroaching, uh, you know, the American border from Canada, you better believe there'd be an American response on the other side of the border. You know, if not, then our government would be negligent on not having, you know, intelligence on the ground that was monitoring what was going on in a situation like this. This is moving major military hardware and forces right up to your border. And, the, and there's no, you know, this idea of false equivalence, well, the U.S. does it, Russia does it. No, Russia's not doing it in Mexico and Canada. U.S. is doing it in Ukraine. There's a world of difference. And we have to remember today is May the 8th. Today is, you know, what is celebrated in Russia, I'm afraid probably only in Russia, is the victory against fascism day. I suspect the rest of the Europe is bemoaning it. You know, this is a, a day of tragedy for them, evidently, judging by, you know, the, the recurrence of fascist sentiments, not only in Ukraine, but in Latvia, Estonia, Croatia, Belgium, you know, across the continent. And, uh, you know, that uh, you, I, I think today is symbolic in that this is, you know, uh, Russia has been invaded through the Ukraine twice by the two largest armies probably ever assembled in Europe. Napoleon Bonaparte's uh, Grand Armée and the Wehrmacht of Adolf Hitler. Of course, they're going to get a bit nervous if a military force directed by a, an adversary on the other side of the Atlantic is uh, wreaking havoc in a country that borders it. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that so difficult for Russophobes to understand? No, um, we like uh, yes. Uh, the, the, the earlier today, there was that uh, announcement uh, from the. Uh, uh, the, the Russian foreign minister uh, talking about uh, the deployment of some 35,000 Ukrainian troops to uh, on the yeah, border. That's what I mentioned. Last yeah. I heard it was 15,000, but I mean with armored columns. And these are being used against civilians, mind you. You know, they can call them terrorists. You know, people in uh, Slavyansk or Donetsk or Lugansk and so forth. But, you know, at, at best, these are people's militias that have probably picked up their grandfather's shotgun, and, you know, maybe if they could buy a gun from a retreating Ukrainian soldier heading back to Lviv or Kiev. But, you know, you're not talking about military formations. Mm-hmm. But what you are talking about is a, uh, you know, U.S. and NATO-trained armed, for- armed forces, rather, uh, you know, uh, being deployed by Kiev. And, and, by the way, you know, being deployed in conjunction with the, the new so-called National Guard, which includes Pravi Sector and other neo-Nazi fighters. This is an open fact. You know, the foreign minister of Russia, Sergei Lavrov, in fact, yesterday said that the junta, this is a term I've been using for three months, I'm glad to see it's in circulation now, that the junta in Kiev is, is siding with neo-Nazis against its own people. That's a quote from the Russian foreign minister, and he's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Now, how are, um, you when you look at uh, people in, in, in eastern Ukraine, it, it sounds as if it, it's not just... Um, yeah, I, I read a there was a, a report. I think it was the New York Times that uh, they they looked into this idea of uh, you know how people were responding and well they're, they're trying to make stuff up. But when they investigated, they found that you know the people were opposed to this uh, this uh, regime, the, this government in in Kiev, and that uh, it was also police authorities were also, uh, you know, supportive of the, the people who were protesting. Yeah, let me give you a case in point. We have to remember there was a federal election five years, uh, four years ago in Ukraine. There was, a, there was a presidential election, and it was a runoff election because they have a multi-party system, unlike uh, the two-party, one-party dictatorship here in the United States. There's no possibility of anything happening that the ruling elite doesn't want to happen. You know, they, they, can, uh, they have bets on both horses in the race, and they control both jockeys. But at any rate, there was a runoff election, and Viktor Yanukovych won. I mean, he didn't win by a landslide, but he, he, he won. And nobody contests 
the legitimacy of those elections, not even the United States, which recognized the result. So if uh, that means if Yanukovych was elected with a majority of the votes in a runoff election, then a majority of adults in the Ukraine, at least those who bothered to vote, supported Yanukovych, who was then deposed and chased into exile. Now, if a majority of people voted for him four years ago, then it suggests to me a majority of people don't want to see the person they voted for deposed. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that uh, uh, you know kind of an ipso facto uh, argument, right? It's self-evident. Yeah. Do the, uh, the the people on the ground is it their understanding that uh, that that this is this is a situation being manipulated by the United States and the European Union? Okay, so this is all anecdotal, and I don't know how else to answer it, but uh, reports that we've read and the posters we've seen in the East where it says U.S. out, U.S. NATO out, uh, I mean, they're, they're pretty clear about who's engineering it. But I've heard, you know, even through the grapevine here in Chicago where they're ethnic Russian uh, people from various parts, I mean, not only Russia, but Ukraine, Transdenistria, and, and other places, um, you know, who are saying that they're almost afraid of how virulent the anti-American sentiment's becoming in eastern Ukraine right now. Uh, you know, the U.S. is, again, uh, creating enemies that are going to exist for decades, if not generations in the future, because of their, uh, you know, their uh, heavy-handed and, and brutal, uh, you know, methods. If people have been killed. They've been killed by the score in the East. You know, I don't know how, what the total is now, probably hundreds killed, hundreds wounded, you know, in the East, by military units. Well, we're not talking about... Um, the anti-terrorism force, or something of the sort. You're talking yeah. about full military units with tanks and artillery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, uh, the, the the these are the operations uh, out of Kiev that are that uh, they're being called anti-terrorism operations. That they're responsible for those uh, hundreds of deaths, right? That's correct. Mm-hmm. But you know, keep in mind too. I mean, the um, you know. The old expression, fortune uh, favors the audacious, right? I think it, it, it really does. And it particularly for, uh, you know, uh, favors, unfortunately, sometimes uh, the most uh, audacious sociopaths and liars. In other words, if during two and a half months of, you know, brutal, deadly uh, actions inside Kiev, again, I, mean, I imagine most of, your, most of the listeners of this program will have seen by now the um, videotapes that were circulating in January and February, police officers being set afire by Molotov cocktails and, you know, the other brutal methods of these people. Not one word of criticism came out of Canada, the United States, or the Western Europe. Let's be honest about it. That was perfectly acceptable behavior. Now, if somebody in Donetsk takes issue uh, with neo-Nazism in his country and his government being overthrown and the person he voted for for president being deposed, and that person tries to defend his village then that person is a terrorist. Not the person who's throwing Molotov cocktails into a trade union headquarters in Odessa and killing 46 people, or 162 people, according to a city councilman in Odessa a couple of days ago. That person, according to the West, is a, what, a freedom fighter, a legitimate, a legitimate representative or defender of the government, of, the, of, of uh, order in the country? I mean, how could you possibly reverse the situation any more effectively than that? Um, what... Um well, well the, the uh, we've seen the sanctions going up against Russia. That in the, the in the West, in in Ukraine, uh, that uh, the uh, you know, critical exports to the Russia to Russia have uh, been cancelled. What kinds of impacts is that having on on the everyday lives of uh, Ukrainians? 
Well, that's a good question. You know, keep in mind that I, I would assume that uh, Ukraine and Russia were probably each other's major uh, trade partners, at least that uh, you know, uh, Russia was Ukraine's major trade partner. I could be wrong, but it's certainly one of them. And that anything done to uh, hurt the Russian economy is going to hurt uh, Ukrainians. I mean, that's, that goes without saying. That's uh, axiomatic. So, I mean, we have that to talk about. But let's be honest that the U.S. and its uh, Western allies have for uh, decades, since uh, the very collapse of the Soviet Union and the emergence of the Russian Federation, been waging economic warfare against Russia anyhow. They've been trying to keep it out of the uh, Western European or out of the European energy market altogether to uh, circumvent uh, Russian natural gas or replace rather uh, Russian natural gas and oil going to Europe, where it represents perhaps 30 to 35 percent of you know the total uh, consumption of uh, the European Union being the largest economic uh, consumer in the world. Know, more than the United States. So that uh, what you're seeing, again, is simply using the Ukrainian crisis as a pretext to intensify programs, everything from energy warfare projects like the uh, Southern Corridor and the um, you know, other efforts to bring Caspian Sea oil and natural gas through the Caucasus into Ukraine, incidentally, I should, I should mention, into the Black Sea region in Ukraine, uh, thereby not only uh, keeping Iran out of the European energy market, but knocking Russia out of it. This is economic warfare. If the situation were reversed, the U.S. would recognize it as such and, and respond accordingly. That's number one. Number two, the, uh, in, in the last two months, the massive, provocative military buildup along Russia's entire western flank and I'm talking about uh, U.S. airborne troops now arriving in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. U.S. Uh, F-16s being flown into Poland, I believe 16 to 18 of them. Uh, you know, Canadian troops coming into Poland for war games with the United States. U.S. warships and other NATO warships coming in increasingly. And these are guided missile ships into the Black Sea. Uh, and this goes on and on and on. There is a massive and provocative military buildup along West, uh, Russia's western border to the point where a Russian general the other day said uh, Russia reserves the right to move Iskander missiles into the Kaliningrad uh, oblast or province. You know, it's a non-contiguous part of Russia, uh, surrounded by Poland and Lithuania. And even uh, you know, made the statement that I think your listeners would do well to recall. He said, remember that Russia is a nuclear power. Mm-hmm. You're not playing with Iraq or Libya or Syria or uh, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia or Afghanistan or Ivory Coast. You're dealing with one of the world's two major nuclear powers, which has the ability to defend itself. And this is why the West and you know the Western elites, at any rate, are playing with fire at their own people's expense. Mm-hmm. You know, under the most false rubrics you could possibly imagine, as though they could care less. Uh, you know, it, it, you know, as though it were possible for them to care less about uh, democracy and the popular will in the Ukraine, about which I can assure you they don't care at all. Is it your sense that uh, the way that that Putin is uh, addressing this whole situation is that he's uh, far from being provocative with, uh, you know, thoughts of trying to invade Ukraine or whatever, that he's being very restrained, if maybe even too restrained? I think the two-restraint argument is more valid of the two, and I could just hear the, uh, you know, the pro-war hyenas howling when they hear this one. Uh, but it's the truth. I mean, he sat back patiently for three weeks during the Sochi Winter Olympics, and I think we can safely say in retrospect the timing of the uprising in Kiev was meant to coincide with the, with the Winter Olympics. In other words, to get, to catch Russia preoccupied so they'd be delayed in responding to the crisis in Ukraine. That's, in fact, what happened. And, uh, you know, my recollection is Mr. Putin spent the, the whole time in Sochi. Mm-hmm. You know, rather than uh, flying back immediately to the Kremlin to, uh, you know, to, to discuss the crisis in Ukraine, which would seem to have been warranted. So, yes, I mean, restrained, I think, is a, 
is an apt term, uh, patient, surely, you know, maybe to a fault, as you indicate. And I don't know, first of all, I don't know what uh, measures could have been taken to uh, to do anything other than uh, simply monitor events in the country. But public statements, I think, should have been ordered. Yeah, I can, uh, you know, again, there's no question in my mind, but if tomorrow a situation like the Ukrainian one were to occur, say, in Mexico, that the United States would not sit on the sidelines for two and a half months as a friendly government was under siege and ultimately was toppled, I can't imagine that for a moment. Well, it's like, uh, how did they react in 1962 in Cuba, right? Yeah, or uh, you know, Dominican Republic in, 1960, in the mid-1960s also, right? Uh, the U.S. didn't like the way an election went, and they invaded it. And, and this you know, happens time and again, and this is without any uh, U.S. interest at stake. No yeah. Americans, are, you know, Grenada, 1983 or something of the sort, Panama, 1989. Uh, we can see when uh, something seems to be shifting in the way the United States doesn't like, they invade it. They invade the nation. Uh, but it, this is a neighboring country, keep in mind, and it's one that is so closely tied to Russia historically, culturally, and, and, and linguistically, in most every way, geographically, surely. Uh, almost to, to be one country. You know, if Lebanon and Syria had been historically near, close to each other, all the more so Russia and Ukraine, to pretend that Russia has no uh, legitimate right to be concerned about what happens in its neighboring country, but the United States does, is again, you know, the absolute, uh, you know, height of hubris, imperial hubris, to be able to think like that, but that's all we think in the West. That's how our government officials speak, that's how our newspapers and television uh, uh, news outlets uh, communicate things to the, the American people. We have the right to interfere anywhere, and nobody else has the right to have any legitimate concerns, even in their own neighboring countries. Rick, um, I'm wondering, I mean, because you, you point out, of course, that when we're talking about nuclear powers here, I mean, it, it's very provocative the way uh, the, the U.S. and NATO seem to be advancing. I mean, sure, there's a lot of propaganda, and that's just part of the game, but one wonders, like, why are they being so daring? Is there is, is there what what are the forces that seems to be prompting this? Is it, is it desperation and, and desperate what on an economic level or uh, in in terms of resources? What what would be driving the West to to want to poke the uh, poke the Russian bear the way they have? Yeah, I'm almost uh, reminded of Aristotle's Poetics when he discusses the structure of the uh, the, the tragedy, you know, the classical drama, the tragedy. And, uh, you know, in the fourth act or thereabouts, you have the climax. And uh, you, it's just structured in that manner. If you continue building up with a certain, um, you know, logic and a certain uh, irreversible momentum, then you're eventually going to get to the point where something like this occurs. And, you know, it's simply in my mind, this is the, fifth, uh, the fourth or the fifth act of the drama. Mm-hmm. And this is where uh, 15 years of NATO expansion and uh, the incorporation of the entirety of Eastern Europe, uh, excluding uh, most Soviet republics, not all of them, but the most Soviet republics into NATO, the moving of uh, U.S. and, and allied uh, uh, warplanes and missiles and interceptor missiles and warships and so forth, again, from the Baltic Sea, actually from the Barents Sea all the way down to the Black Sea, that uh, you you can only move up to your neighbor's border uh, so far before you reach it. And when you reach it, then it's a showdown. That's what's happening. The US, there, there was no further east the U.S. could go. You know, once having uh, you know, uh, been part and parcel of, in fact, ordering the overthrow of the Yanukovych government, we have to remember the infamous Victoria, Victoria Nuland audio tape where she said just that. You know, she was dictating the composition of the future government after the legitimate government was overthrown, and that's exactly what has occurred. 
Mm-hmm. So once you uh, move into a country that has, I don't know, somewhere from 12 to 1500 kilometer border with Russia, uh, then you've reached the uh, you know the the point beyond which uh, it's war. Mm-hmm. So g- given the, uh, the 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 dynamics as as they exist right now, wh- there's uh, an election that was planned for May 25th. What uh, are what what are you anticipating? Uh, fraud? Are you anticipating a an ele- you know fair elections? How is it going to go? Yeah, that's a very difficult question. It depends on what um, those areas not under the thumb or under the heel of the Kiev junta decide to do, whether they hold uh, independence referenda uh, or they participate in the national presidential election. I would uh, be very surprised if the entire East simply didn't boycott uh, the charade that is the, you know, the, the planned election. And how in heaven's name can you hold an election when a good half of your country is beyond the control of the capital? And that the capital is actually waging war against it. I mean, you couldn't. That would be like holding a federal election throughout the, you know, the, the United States during the U.S. Civil War. I mean, that's, that's an absurd contention. There's no way you could do that. Uh, however, I can tell you this: that there'll be a, um, you know, rump election, if you will, in those parts of the country controlled by the junta, with a few absentee ballots uh, drifting in from sympathizers in other parts of the country. And whatever the percentage of the, the turnout, you know, the polling places are, the, uh, is, uh, the U.S. and its Western allies will pro- proclaim it a legitimate election and recognize the winner. Mm. So the legitimacy has nothing to do with it. Uh, serving Western interests has everything to do with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the U.S. arbitrarily ignores election results it doesn't, uh, it doesn't like. And, uh, you know, keep in mind, again, there was a scheduled presidential election uh, March of next year. This would have been in five-year terms, presidential terms. Uh, there was a scheduled election for March of next year. Mm. And uh, it was so urgent, supposedly, if you listen to the Western propagandists, who are sounding, by the way, increasingly not so much absurd as deranged, uh, to you know, claim there's, you could not wait 11, uh, 10 or 11 months you know, for the next presidential election. Something was so urgent that you had to overthrow the government, kill people on the streets of Kiev, and plunge the world into uh, probably the most dangerous uh, potential military conflict, I, I would argue, in modern times, surely, you know, since the Cuban Missile Crisis, at any rate. But, you know, to believe that narrative, I mean, what else would uh, somebody be credulous enough to swallow if they can believe that? That's, you know, that's the first thing. And uh, second of all, coming out of that is the idea that, um, you know, I've said it before. I mean, you, you can go uh, do a, a web search and look at the current poll ratings, you know, approval ratings for uh, U.S. President Barack Obama. I have no doubt whatsoever that his poll ratings now are lower than those of Viktor Yanukovych at the time he was overthrown. Mm-hmm. Does this justify them, or does it necessitate? Does it demand that the American people to uh, fall into line with its new standard of democracy, take over the streets of Washington, D.C., set up barricades, set it on fire, attack police officers. You know, what's, what's uh, sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander, is it not? If that was uh, legitimate, a legitimate course of action in Ukraine, then why not here? I think, like, you, you touched on, uh, I think, one of the most important points in this whole drama, and, and this was, like, it was stated by the, the speakers, uh, Mr. Axworthy and his uh, assistant uh, at that talk, that it was... Uh, that Yanukovych fled, that he wasn't, uh, you know, but yet, yet, you know, so, so I was wondering if, if you could maybe 
just you know expand on on what is absolutely known about what happened on uh, February twentieth and and twenty first? You know, what were the circumstances by which Mr. Yanukovych uh, left the, the part of the country? Look, there's there could be a number of possibilities. He could have absconded with as much wealth as he could get out of the country for fear of it being confiscated. That's entirely possible. He could have feared for his life. That's also entirely possible. He could have, uh, you know, decided, as the U.S. is very good at doing, you know, have a, uh, a leader come into an adjoining country and then set up a government in exile and, uh, you know, recognize that and then interfere on its behalf. You know, there are any number of uh, prospects here. But what is indisputable is this is that somebody who, again, won the presidential election in, 19, uh, in 2010 with nobody disputing the inherent, uh, the basic fairness of the election or the results uh, thereof, and, uh, uh, you know, a short while before, somebody uh, recognized by every government in the, in the world, as far as I know, as the legitimate head of state of Ukraine, is then deposed in a violent uprising. Wherever he goes, whatever he does, whoever or whatever he is, is of secondary importance compared to that fact, which, again, is incontestable. There's no question about what occurred. Mm -hmm. Now, is it the policy of Canada, the United States, and their NATO allies in Europe that any time a segment of the population, a minority of that, becomes dissatisfied with an elected president, they have the right to uh, take over their capital and stage a violent uprising to overthrow him? Yes or no? Because if the answer is no, then there's some apologizing to be done on the Ukraine. If the answer is yes, why don't you look at uh, a little bit closer to home in terms of political transformation? Hmm. Um, I'm wondering, and just uh, give, given the Ukraine precedent, and I guess it isn't really a precedent because this has been happening in, in other countries as well, but I, I'm wondering, like as we've seen Syria, Libya, um, Venezuela, um, even uh, Egypt uh, was, uh, had a conversation last week and uh, how uh, certain efforts are, are going into that. I, I'm wondering if there's any other strategic regions that you sort of have an eye on that uh, could be subject to this kind of uh, uh, attempt at uh, you know, U.S.-NATO-style democratization. Yeah, of course, China. We just saw the prime minister, you know, the uh, right-wing revisionist uh, prime minister of uh, Japan, Abe, uh, go to NATO headquarters two days ago, or yesterday perhaps, where he signed an in, what's called an individual partnership and cooperation agree, program agreement with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Japan, for the last two years, has been one of uh, an initial group of eight countries uh, that are part of NATO's newest program, the title of which is Partners Across the Globe. This is now the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It has openly proclaimed itself history's first global uh, military bloc. So that Japan, and this, by the way, the way the headlines in, uh, in the Western press cover this is wary of a rising China, Japan, and NATO, you know, and so forth. In other words, it's a, a clear indication that NATO is supporting Japan in any future military conflict with China, particularly over what uh, the Chinese know as the uh, Diaoyu and the Japanese as the Senkaku Islands. And with the U.S. reiterating, something goes back to Hillary Clinton four years ago, but in recent weeks reiterating that the uh, 1961 um, you know, uh, military defense pact between uh, Japan and the United States is in Article 4, maybe it's Article 5, uh, would, uh, the U.S. would honor that commitment to intervene militarily against China in the event of an of a armed dispute over that island chain. So we have that, right? And we have the fact that 
uh, you know, Russia and China are both under assault simultaneously, as is, as is Iran. We can't ignore the massive military buildup in the Persian Gulf with the, uh, you know, the human rights or responsibility to protect the regime in Washington right now that Mr. Obama signing the largest bilateral arms agreement in history with Saudi Arabia in the last 18 months. You know, over $30 billion, around $35, $38 billion, originally projected to be in the $60 billion range. Nobody says anything about that, right, Michael? Yeah. Uh, you know, humanitarians don't say anything about that. Uh, responsibility to protect people don't say anything about that. Human rights groups don't say anything about that. Uh, because the military is sacred, and if the U.S. wants to use a benighted regime like that in Riyadh uh, to attack Syria or to attack uh, anybody or Iran, then that's perfectly acceptable and everyone shuts up. Well, um, yeah, Rick, well, that's, uh, you know, you've certainly been very comprehensive in outlining that uh, overall strategic situation. Um, I, I don't know, I guess based on the, the, the events of the last few days, uh, the Odessa massacre and, and whatnot, are you optimistic or, or pessimistic head going ahead? And I almost want to say this is of such uh, importance, uh, decisive importance, uh, I did mention uh, Aristotle and the, and the class, uh, classical tragedy. This is something of tragic proportions. I mean, something of epic, I suppose, but definitely of tragic proportions. That is, it is in such a higher realm uh, that it's, I think subjective questions about being optimistic or pessimistic almost don't come into play. I mean, the question is, is rather, uh, is there a way of resolving, and I don't mean uh, ignoring, but resolving the conflict in Ukraine without war, and I, uh, frankly, don't know the answer to that. Mm. You know, I am as anti-war as anybody is, but I can't say with any degree of certitude that uh, the U.S. Uh, and its allies being as absolutely intractable and recalcitrant as they've been, that they seem to be, you know, if I want to be a bit subjective or speculative here, they seem to be hell-bent on some kind of military conflict. And I don't know if it can be avoided. I think Russia has done everything possible not to fall into a trap you know, by intervening in, uh, in eastern U Ukraine and, and providing the pretext for the U.S. to, uh, you know, possibly escalate militarily. But I, I, it's, it's beyond the control of people like ourselves at this moment. I don't know if, it's be, if anybody can control it at this point. It has its own momentum. Well, Rick Rosoff, on that uh, rather grim outlook, I want to thank you very much for uh, sharing that analysis with us. Uh, it's always great to have you on the show. Thank you again, Mike. We've been speaking with Rick Rosoff, who is an anti-war and anti-militarist campaigner, and he runs the Stop NATO Listserv and website. That concludes our show. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour. You can hear our program every week on campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM and on partner radio stations across the country. The show can be heard on the Progressive Radio Network at prn.fm and can be downloaded from the website globalresearch.ca. Thank you for joining us. If you have any questions or comments about today's program, feel free to send your feedback to globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Join us again.